We'll uh, go ahead and get started on our next lesson on this uh, beautiful, ever-increasingly fall-looking day. And uh, I have tabulated, this is our 44th lesson in the book of Romans, and we're at Romans 2, 11 through 24, so we're, we're cruising. Um, and... Uh, you know, we're, we're coming up to a transition point. So I wanted a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, Jeff Steele is going to teach for us next week. So thank you for doing that. Looking forward to it. And, um, and then Jeff Tankersley and I were just talking about uh, a little farther out, probably through the holiday season. We're going to take this break between Romans 3.20 and Romans 3.21, which many of you know, is the break between uh, Paul's closed case of the prosecution of humanity that we're in right now and the shift to, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. So you move right into this doctrine of justification by faith that is right on the heels of the doctrine of man and, and man's condition and condemnation, which Paul is, as you've seen, is exhaustive in that condemnation. That's part of the reason why this is moving like it's moving. And I don't know for you, but it's it's been heavy on my heart um, as I ponder these texts um, in so many different ways. Uh, but we are in that transition from uh, the doctrine of man to the doctrine of justification by faith. We thought it would be good to, to, to do a series um, really around the history of the doctrine of the justification by faith. Because if there is a doctrine over the course of the entirety of the church that has been more under attack than justification by faith, I'm not sure what it would be unless it were the doctrine of man. So it's really these two doctrines... Um, the, the rejecting of what the scriptures say about our condition apart from Christ's intervening work um, in us, and then how are we saved? From where does our righteousness come from is the question that Paul presents in that next section. So we'd love to just spend some time in that history um, uh, over the years to just give us a sense of just how ferocious that battle's been and how faithful the church has been in fighting that battle, frankly, to this very day. Um, so that, that's kind of what we have ahead of us. But let me open us up in a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we are so thankful to you to come before our triune God and to just have the blessed privilege to open up your word, open up your truth, have your spirit in us to, to illumine our hearts and minds to these truths and the implications. And Lord, most importantly, the application of our own life and the lives of those around us. We just thank you for the saints, Lord, who treasure these truths because they treasure the source and the object of these truths, and that would be you. 
our blessed Savior. And we're just so thankful to be able to open up your word and see your glory in every bit of it and to praise you all the more and to do this always in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so I want to just, once again, just read um, the text where we were at last week. And really, I want us to just read Romans 2.11 through 16. And we're going to really concentrate on that section this morning and hopefully engage in a, in a little bit of discourse about this. So I've tried to, to peel this prepared study back a little bit um, and open up some discussion. Um, and if you're all are rebellious and you won't talk to me, then I've got plan B ready to, to, to continue on so we're not up here. But let me just read Romans 2, 11 through 16. And, and please just let these words fall on us in a way that causes us to think carefully about this text. And I say that, and I'll, I'll somewhat stir us up to it. I, I, as I have studied this text and I examine just my limited observation of the visible church, which has many forms to it, um, I do think that this is one of the most distorted doctrines today. And, and it gets distorted in the answer to the question, what is the true condition of man? And the church has many, 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 many unbiblical stories <laughs> and their answer to that that absolutely deny this section of Scripture, absolutely deny it. And I, wanna, I want you to, to, to know that and to feel that because I think it directly impacts the way we approach our responsibility to share the gospel and to evangelize and disciple around us, right? Um, and I think you'll see what I mean um, as we unpack this this morning. Verse 11, tiny little sentence, but so important. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now just pause on that a minute. Because there are so many ways we jump from that text into our thinking, right? Particularly around verse 13. Paul then comes back with verse 14, and you can see where his focus goes. For when Gentiles, right? Because the next section is towards the Jews. So when Gentiles who do not have the law by 
nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You hear what Paul's saying? Here's something that will help you when you read this passage. This is how we're judged. This is how we are declared guilty. This text is not designed to give us a way out. It's actually designed to give us no way out. That's Paul's purpose with this text. Remember I talked about the dragnet a couple of weeks ago? Paul wants to make sure that there is no one in this church in Rome who in any way, shape, or form is relying on their good works for salvation. It is that simple. And he has gone to extensive lengths to make sure that's clear. Right? So we want to make sure we get that. And we want to make sure we think about, okay, so what do I do with that? Right? And then verse 16, just the beautiful personal Paul. So he, he, let me back up. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So some key words on that day. So when is that, right? According to my gospel, meaning there is another gospel or many another gospels. This is my gospel because it is my Lord's gospel. And then God judges not what is visible, but the secrets of men by the very one who was crucified as the only means by which we could be out from under this condemnation. That's Paul's whole point, right? We talked a little bit last week about no partiality, and it is, it is really quite simple, but let me, let me just try to pull it all together in a little bit of a narrative to help you with that on this notion of no partiality. God will not be influenced by the person nor can he be externally influenced in his judgment by sin or corruption as all of humanity is, right? These are these old-timey dead guys, right? These old-timey saints. And what are they saying? No one can or will judge like God because our judgment in its best effort is corrupted with the noetic effect of sin. We cannot rightly judge, which is why we are cautioned 
right? Do not judge. Rely on the word of God to walk you through that, right? It also tells us that all of the judgments, all of the work, and all of humanity that are going on right now is corrupted by sin. And I don't think that's a difficult thing to see at all, right? When you see the level of corruption that is at every end of the spectrum today. It's at every end of the spectrum. And that is not some evolutionary accident. That is the continuing wrath of God on society, giving us over to a mind that doesn't even function properly. And it breeds lawlessness in every form, right? But it's not so with God. He's going to judge perfectly. They go on to say, it is hard to imagine how many people will have gone before the Lord thinking that their position in life, education, accomplishments, recognition of other men will have the primary influence on their judgment. Remember I told you the testimony of one very, very, very prominent person who says, you know, I've had a very successful career. I'm very well known by a lot of people. I've traveled all over the world. I am very wealthy, right? I have held very, very prominent positions in the world. I think I'm pretty good with the big guy. He literally, that's the quote. That is in direct opposition of this text. Do you see it? This is what is rampant today in our society. This doctrine has literally been jettisoned, right? As we will see, it will not be based on who we are, but the truth of the deeds that we do. It is not what we say we are. It is not what we appear we are. It is what we actually do that we will be judged, right? Now, remember what I said last week and two weeks ago. Don't confuse or mix condemnation and judgment with salvation here. Paul's point is for you to stay over here and stay on the line of condemnation so that every one of our mouths may be shut. That's what Paul is doing in this text. He is not providing us a way out an on-ramp to Christ that's called good works. He's saying all of your good works will be judged. And remember when we divided the room, right? Between the sheep and the goats, those who have done the law perfectly and those who have not. Remember how empty the one side was and that there was only one man on that side? And that was Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point. That's when he, why he makes the transition in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so important to understand in today's kind of religiosity that we have all around us. We will be judged by those deeds under the perfect and complete understanding of God in the flow of the heart's intentions, those secrets of men which produced the deeds which made them visible. 
that then activated the God-given conscience and either sharpened that conscience or seared it away. By its accusing or excusing. Okay. So let's, let's get into a little bit of an understanding of what Paul's really referring to, particularly as it relates to, I think, um, verse 12 and 13. For all have sinned without the law. I'm sorry. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And when Paul brings that word justified into this discussion, I think that that provides a door. It's a trap door, right? What are you thinking, Jeff? It's a trap door. If I say it's a trap door, why is that a trap door? I mean... Exactly. That's right. Yeah. My mind keeps going, and I know you've heard the story of the male being in there uh, and teaching the men. The law says this, and going through, you know, not trying not to steal. How many of people have stolen and then raised their hand to do it? You should not commit adultery. How many have done it and raised their hand to do it? My hand has been up. I'm going up. And I can say, thou shalt not. those of you that have seen Ray Comfort's ministry on YouTube, that's exactly what he does with that camera, <laughs> right? And you can literally see these people melt, hardened people melt when they understand exactly what you just described, right? And that this brings, so let, let's, let's, let's look, think about this, right? How do we harmonize this, what appears to be an apparent paradox in Scripture between the doers of the law being justified when we study all across the Scriptures and say we're justified by faith? How do we harmonize that? I think it's an important question to really rattle in our heads. I don't mean to give you a headache this early in the morning, but, but it's really important. That's why I wanted to slow down on this. How do we harmonize when the Scriptures say that it is the doers of the law that, that will be justified? Because I'm telling you, I, I, I sat with a group of men yesterday morning in, in, in our home and for three and a half hours, 
this four hour, this was part of the topic because they are they are coming out of churches that have made nothing but confusion out of this text. I would say maybe there's a third that would be circumcision. That's precisely how Scripture uses it. And you've heard me say it before. This is something I'd like you to just store away in your mind when you're, because folks, if we're not having this conversation out there in the religious realm that we find ourselves in, we need to be. Because I think the more you wade into this, the more you will find that most people are utterly confused and consequently, or even encouraged in the teaching that those works, those good deeds before salvation are an on-ramp to salvation. You hear me? I mean, does that, does that resonate? Do you see that, right? Which implies what about that person to begin with? That some of them are good people. Some of them are rightly, genuinely seeking after God apart from any intervening work of God at all. And their good works are, in fact, testimony to how they got there, right? There's also the other gospel. That's exactly why Paul says, my gospel. Because he's being accused of another gospel because it is going right in the face of the gospel of works. That the Judaizers, and, and apparently the Jews that are in this church in Rome are trying to invoke into this church because he speaks right at them, right? That's right. That's Paul's point, right? Now, think about that in terms of the way this book is laid out. It's really just masterful work of the Holy Spirit, obviously, but for Paul to be the author because he spends all this time making sure 
that anybody who walks out of this section up through Romans 3.20, who still believes that their good works drew them favor with God that then caused God to save them or they saved themselves with those good works, are absolutely shut in their mouth, right? That's his intention, right? And then he goes to justification by faith. For Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then 14 years later came circumcision, and then after that came the encounter with Isaac, right? Showing the fruit of the work God had done, which, by the way, are the deeds that the believer will be judged by. Some gold and silver, some wood, hay, and stubble, right? But the purpose of this text is to make sure that when we really consider whether we are a law unto ourselves without the written law, and we are recognizing right from wrong from within us, which every human being has, or we are using that same process and the law, those two laws do one thing. Perfectly. What is it? Hmm? Eventually, but what does it do? Condemns. That's the point. It condemns. Now, why, why go through this, right? Yes. You, you just said it. There's no condemnation for who? Why? Bear with me. I mean, just grind with me. Why? Anybody want to help him out? Why? Right? Right. Right. That's why Paul uses in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, because that's all there is, in Christ. Because of outside of the Christ, you are under the law. And outside of Christ, you looked at humanity with no Christ. Where's everybody at on that judgment of the sheep and the goats? The goats. Right? That's why Paul spends the rest of the time on this section of Scripture and says, no, not one. Not even, and he pulls, and we're going to get it, he pulls it all from the Old Testament. <laughs> all from the Old Testament. So that every mouth may be shut, right? And in the order of salvation that Jeff taught about, we're going to get into that a little bit, right? How do we get out of that condemnation? to no condemnation. Who, this is so important, I've said it before, and I'm sorry to be kind of elementary about this or redundant about this, but who is the one man who perfectly obeyed the law? Jesus. That's the point. Don't lose sight of that point. That excludes humanity, except for the one 
who, what, and this is why it's so important to get into this deep doctrine of the fact that Jesus was 100% God, but he had to be 100% man because the condemnation that we are now no longer under fell on him. And that's where these words of propitiation take place. He was the substitute who paid the debt as the man who kept the law perfectly and the God man of the second person of the Trinity. The power to actually atone for all of those sins of those whom the Father has given him. And that's where we get into these beautiful doctrines that Paul gets into in Romans 3.21. And this is why Jeff and I taught, this is why the doctrine of justification by faith is so severely and an elongated attack. And the root of it is in this text. What do you believe about man? And as Grady mentioned a couple weeks ago in his sermon, from where does your righteousness come from? That's the question. That's what determines if there is now no condemnation. And then everything you do in Christ is now a fruit of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and that Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we may walk in them, which is precisely why we just throw the crowns right back at the foot of our Lord. You see how that, isn't it beautiful how complete and cohesive scripture is? It's just beautiful. Enormously important. Exactly. That's right. Well, and run that out. It's a wonderful point. Because what, what basis does our God give his beloved Israel as the reason for choosing them? There was nothing, there was nothing special about you. You are the smallest, the weakest, the most worst. I mean, there's nothing special. So I'm picking you. The, if there's any partiality, <laughs> there was nothing special about that. But yet, here is the power of the delusion of our minds, if we're not careful. We can ignore those texts as plain as they are and flip that completely on its head and reach a point where Israel is the most and the best, right, and outside of all of this because they're God's special people, right? I think that applies to the church today. Yes.
right. Yes. And if you read her memoirs, it's hauntingly sad. She died dark and alone in her soul for that very reason. That's a perfect example. Of it is. Right. Yeah. This is why. Yep. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. This is why, what's John 17, 9 say? Jesus would not pray for this world. Now, you have to look at the word world carefully in the Johannian corpus because some have counted as many 17 different variations of the word world in his text. But in John 3.16, you have, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But you got to remember to read 17, 18, 19, 20, right, to get the true full extent of that passage, which is rarely read, right? Mark and I know that from the prison very well. And then you get to John 17.9, and you find that Jesus wouldn't even pray for the world, which is the world, James, you're talking about, that would... So what does that tell you about the entire life of Mother Teresa who went into that ministry at a very young age and poured and devoted her entire life to it within the Roman Catholic system? Did they ever teach Romans 1, 18 through 3.20? Can they? No. I'm a witness. It's why I speak so explicitly back into this system, because that's what it does to human beings. Times a billion people today, because they absolutely reject this section of Scripture, except for the doers of the law are justified. So you work out your salvation, right, to be saved, right, as opposed to what the scriptures reveal, which it is the fruit of your salvation and done to exalt the one who has saved you, right? So James, James has just articulated what my wife has seen for the last month in the heaviness of my heart, frankly. Exactly that. And I can start with me. Do I have the passion for these truths? When you see a visible church that is filled with people 
who absolutely reject vehemently this doctrine of man's condition apart from Christ. And here's the question I want to stir up in all of us and talk about it. What does it mean when you reject this doctrine? Uh, this is getting real, like, you see where I'm going? What does it mean when individuals and a church and a whole de denominations of churches clearly reject this doctrine in every way? What does it mean? Go ahead, James. I want to stir up this conversation. Here's why I want to stir it up. Excuse me just a minute. We have got to, we have got to realize that it is through this door that we evangelize. And I, the question James is about to respond to is, what if you bring someone to Christ without bringing them through this door, this dark storm of the reality of our condemnation? That's right. And that is so offensive to people who I talk to who just say, that's the problem with Christianity is it is so, uh, what's the word they tell me? Um, exclusive. Right. They're so exclusive and you guys think it's only one way. How arrogant of you to think that you have somehow figured out the one way to get to this glorious God. Now, doesn't that sound, that's when you generally go, oh, here it comes, right? Am I ready for this? And this is what I'm, I want to make sure we're ready for this. Or that you understand better than the Catholic Church. Right. That, oh, yeah. That yeah. That's right. That's right. 
And isn't that a beautiful, doesn't it just, I mean, so let me put it, come at it from the negative. Suppose that it was up to us to convince them to believe in Jesus. Right? Let, let's, let's play it right into the Gospels. And, and I'm not in the typical custom of quoting uh, Copeland. <laughs> I'm sorry. Spare with me. But, but he would say, Jesus is the biggest loser in the Bible. It's hard for me to even say those words. He would say, Jesus is the biggest loser in the Bible. Look at his ministry. He chased everybody away. What's he not saying about his ministry, first of all, right? But, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's laughable if it weren't so horrible, right? But the point is, that's, that's, yeah, go ahead. Keep coming, keep coming, keep going. Keep going up to the, right? You are stealing what? The glory of God. Yep. And Paul is making sure that there is no one in this church at Rome who will not be taught properly. That's why he's so exhaustive in this effort, right? Because we are stealing the glory of God when we give one ounce of credit of that no condemnation to anything that we have done, which the Bible declares so clearly in Isaiah 64, 6, is nothing but filthy rags, right? That's Paul's point. Now, now with all that as kind of the... Um, we're go, we, we're going to go into the classroom a little bit here, right? How is it 9.47 already? <laughs> I was thinking, oh, it's probably about 9.30, you know? Yes, thank you. Okay, here, here's, here's the gauntlet. Joe, what about, and you've got, you've got a whole room full of people, waiting on your answer. And you have no idea what they're thinking or where they come from. Right. Or maybe you're on Oprah Winfrey. Seriously. And you're asked, Joe, what about the little girl in the jungle who has never once heard the gospel? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, so. I, yeah. So, um, this, this text is where you better go. And you better not rely on your thinking. You better not rely on your emotions. You better not rely on your heart. And I'll give you a perfect example of why that is deadly. 
to not go straight to this text and let God's word. And by the way, uh, what did Spurgeon say about the whole lion thing, right? Just let it out of the cage. It does the work through the Holy Spirit. Your job is to not let the offense be because of you or me. Let the offense come from a person's rejection of the plain truth of the Word of God, which means we better be able to plainly present this doctrine to that. Because that's the question. That's, the que that's when Oprah says there are millions of ways to get to heaven, so they can not answer that question. Billy Graham, the beloved Billy Graham, go find the video in the Crystal Cathedral with Schuler was asked this question. Now, you think about that day of judgment because his answer was, you know, I think God just has a wider mercy. You've seen the video? A wider mercy that denies everything Paul has written in this section of Scripture. And that went out to millions of people. Millions. Of, and every single person who was clinging to a false sense of salvation by works took a big, deep breath of that air. Right, Jeff? There is a wholesale rejection of one of the, of the doctrine, which is the means by which God brings us to his son. Because can we come to Christ without the full condemnation? Or is it another gospel of cooperation and not condemnation to no condemnation because of the exclusive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So thank you, Mark. Okay. Look at, we're going to, we're going to have to, you guys have been slow, so we're going to have to whip through these passages pretty quick. Look, look at Ephesians 2, 1 through Oh, mercy, where do you stop when you're in here? I'll just read until I stop. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and, by, and the mind, and were by nature, there's that nature, that condemns us, excuses us, and accuses us. Because all we have to do is be properly accused one time by our conscience, and we are now guilty before God. That's Paul's point, right? Who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. How do you get out from underneath that passage if you somehow crawled out from underneath Romans 1, 18 through 320? 
You, you don't, right? And then you see the but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God does something powerful, right? How does he do it? What's the experience of it? That's right where Mark was going. Go to, to uh, John 6, 37, right where Mark went. You'd think you were reading my mind, Marky. All that the Father gives me might come to me. If they're a good person, if they, were, if they were raised in the church, if they were raised in a good family, they might come to me, right? Right? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's just two ways of saying what the Father does, what I do, it's permanent. It's going nowhere because we did it, right? We did it. He goes on to talk a little farther down. Look at verse 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's the passage that really grabbed hold of me last night. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, hang on to this for a minute. The moment you came to Christ, God the Father was teaching you to come to Christ. Now, I want you to think about that window of every believer's experience of the soul. What was going on there? What was going on there? Look at verse 63. This is such a magnificent section of Scripture. When we think about these deep, deep, it is the Spirit who gives life. So here we see the entire triune God, you modalists. <laughs> Those that see one God, uh, three modes, moving in and out. Well, here they all three are. And as MacArthur would say, boy, they were sure switching that hat in a hurry, right? Because here they are, the Father's teaching, the Spirit's giving life, and it's Christ who's dying and atoning. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. But did he modify his message? Did he modify the truth? The truth was the same for those that were being drawn by the Father versus those that were going to actually crucify him. 
There's a message for us, right? Let the lion out of the cage, but make sure it's the lion of Scripture, plain old Scripture, right? Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then you see what happens in verse 66. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Right? Don't be discouraged when the word of God sends somebody away. To some an aroma of life, to some an aroma of death. To some, it's an aroma that, Mark, your point was, they walk away and that thing is just spinning in their head. And then the Lord might lay a Bible on a credenza of a house that some unbelieving religious guy buys. And he opens the book of John. And by the time he hits John 14, he knows he knows of the Lord, but he does not know the Lord at all. And those words will come as the Father teaches and the Spirit gives life and illumines us to the Scriptures, right? So, so what's my point, right? Look at Galatians 3, 23 through 24. I'm just walking you down this little expanded view of what Jeff walked us through. Beautiful passage. Now, before faith came, here it is. We were held captive under the law. There it is. And when you say that word law, you can go from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20 and shut your mouth. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, which is what the Father teaches us in that moment of salvation that comes through that dark storm of what? The law condemning us. So here's the question I want to leave us with. It's a haunting question. What if you come to Christ in your experience and have never come through the condemnation of the law? Yeah. Thank you, Grady. <laughs> yeah. Ponder that question. How do I come to Christ through what we know in the Bible as the Father's teaching, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit? While we were under the law, we come through the law, and it is the law that was our tutor to bring us to Christ if we never saw ourselves under the law and its condemnation. You see the implications of that question? 
How many read Romans 3, 9 through 20 and say, boy, I'm glad that was somebody else because that was never me. That's my point. You see how important our evangelism from the word of God is? You, you wonder how many religious people are going to church this morning that have never, ever been under the law of condemnation. When it's the Father who teaches us that condemnation's purpose. Okay? That's what I wanted to kind of stick in your crawl because it's right here in mine. Right? So, all right, you guys. So we'll enjoy Jeff's study next week, and then we'll pick back up with this text.